Morning, everybody. Thank you for the birthday wishes. Let's just sing it again, okay? No. That was that was neat. Thank you. Let's uh, take our Bibles to the book of turn in our Bibles and turn them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 24 and verse 28. The title of our message this morning is Two to Three Witnesses. Two to Three Witnesses. We have been, as you know, studying the life of Abraham in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings, taking our time with this uh, pivotal character, Abraham, because had God not dealt with Abraham the way he did in terms of his calling, uh, the blessings that we have today with the Savior and the Scripture wouldn't exist. So Abraham is a critical and foundational character in the outworking of God's purposes. Abraham and Sarah have waited. They have received the miracle child Isaac. We learned about the potential crisis of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac in chapter 22. Isaac is a big deal because he needs a wife. If there's no Isaac and Rebekah, then there's no Jacob. If there's no Jacob, there's no 12 tribes. If there's no 12 tribes, then there's no tribe of Judah. And if there's no Judah, there's no Jesus. And so that's why the Lord has given us, actually, in this chapter, chapter 24, 67 verses to understand how this marriage between Isaac and Rebekah came together. It begins with Abraham's instructions to his servant, how he is not to take Isaac out of the land, but rather to go to where his family was originally from to retrieve a wife for Isaac. This is such a serious issue that the servant, is sworn to do this in the most solemn way possible from Abraham. So the servant does what we all should do when we have something bigger in our lives than ourselves. And how do I, where am I going? How do I know I'm going to meet the right woman? What if she doesn't want to come back to the land to marry Isaac? So these are big issues. And so the servant prays, verses 10 through 14. But then God sovereignly works, as God does, providentially. And the servant meets Rebekah there in verses 15 through 27. And so we worked our way through those verses. And now the servant is going to meet the brother of Rebekah, a man named uh, Laban, a man as we'll see here today, and we'll see it very clearly as we move through the book of Genesis, a man of mixed motives, uh, to say the least. 
But as the servant and Laban, Rebecca's brother, are now united, we have a exchange between the two in the house. This would be in Laban's house, verses 28 through 33. And then the story of how Abraham dispatched the servant to eventually meet Isaac is such a big deal. The story is literally retold in verses 34 through 49. So you might be saying to yourself, well, goodness, I missed last week. I missed the story. Well, don't panic. The whole thing is told to us again here. For a story in the Bible to be retold in almost the same degree of detail obviously means the Holy Spirit wants us to understand this story. I mean, everything in the Bible is important. But when you see things repeated, it's almost like God is putting an asterisk by it or highlighting it because he wants this communicated throughout the generations. There's an ancient uh, principle in the Bible. It says, by two to three witnesses, let a matter be established. And we see the two witnesses here as the story is given earlier. Verses... um, 15 through 27, and now it's virtually repeated, verses 34 through 49. But notice the exchange between the servant of Abraham and Laban, Rebekah's brother, in Laban's home. Um, You see that in verses 28 through 33. Notice the reaction of Rebekah when she meets the servant. It says, then the girl, that would be Rebecca, ran and told her mother's household about these things. Notice the urgency. She ran. I mean, this is very serious what God is doing here. He's performed a providential miracle to unite these groups. And, of course, Rebecca is just as excited as anybody in this. She sees the hand of God, and so she has a sense of urgency. She wants to run back to her family to explain everything that's just transpired. It's sort of uh, convicting when you read this because we have to ask ourselves, are we as equally urgent about the things of God? Do the things of God really motivate us? Do they excite us? Uh, We're hearing truth in church about the eternal work and eternal purposes of God does this create within us a motivation to tell other people? It should. The Christian life is a, is a life of urgency. The book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, says we're just like mist that appears for a little while and then it disappears. Actually, you'll see that in verses 5 and following of James, chapter 1. We're not here for a very long period of time in comparison to the backdrop of eternity. We don't have a lot of time to really invest ourselves properly into the things of God, into eternal things. And so we have to take on at some point a mindset that, you know, this is serious. Let's be urgent about this. You see this urgency in Rebecca, verse 28. Then you see Laban, her brother's response to these things. Notice verse 29, Genesis 24. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. 
And then you see his action. Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. Now, although Laban is also motivated by a sense of urgency, as we get into this, what you'll see very quickly is his motives are very mixed. You see these mixed motives down in verse 30. It says, when he, that's Laban, saw the ring and the bracelets. Remember that when the servant met Rebecca, he put the ring and bracelets upon her body, upon her finger, upon her hands, upon her wrists. And notice what Laban is looking at here. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he had heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this is, the, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the, at the spring. The bracelets and so forth go on to Rebekah, going back to verse 22. That apparently is something that was very attractive to Laban. His sort of deceptive and deceitful character is going to be unfolded as we continue into the book of Genesis. But we see his motives. He was motivated by material things. That, of course, is a great tragedy when people are motivated to the things of God based on what they can get from God financially rather than what they can give. That's a pretty good description of Judas. You remember Mary broke the flask of oil and she began to, John 12, pour it on Christ. Out of an act of worship to him, Judas, John 12, verse 6, was watching this. And Judas says in John 12, verse 6, Actually, John 12, verse 5, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He made a statement that looked altruistic. He came across sort of as a humanitarian. But John 12, verse 6 gives us his motive. It says, now he, that's Judas, said this, not because he was concerned about the poor. Isn't that interesting? Not everybody that claims they care for the poor really cares about the poor. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. I like all that money going to the money box that I can embezzle from. Judas' motive there is laid bare. This is why when you select deacons for a church, the Bible is very clear that a deacon must be, their character must be free from the love of money. Because they are handling the church's money. They are handling the church's finances. And if you have someone in that position whose character is suspect, as you well know, it's a recipe for disaster. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 of deacons, it says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of integrity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid pain. 
Be careful who you put into a position of leadership, particularly in the the realm or role of a deacon, because money does funny things to people. Handling the church's money, counting the church's money, budgeting the church's money. If you have someone in that position whose character is suspect, obviously it's a recipe for disaster. That's what Laban was like. I mean, you can see it very clearly here what he's looking at. Rebecca's brother, he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists. Um, That motivation is given there in verse um, 30. Laban here gives an invitation when he sees this. Verse uh, 31, it says, and he said, come in blessed of the Lord. Now, this is very interesting because when Laban and his words are recorded here, he uses the word Jehovah. And yet, Where was Laban located? Laban, as we have studied, was located in an area called Mesopotamia, an area between the Tigris and the Euphrates, modern-day Iraq. According to Genesis 11, verse 31, his family migrated upward in that Mesopotamian area to a place called uh, Haran. Abraham continued to migrate, as we know, eventually into the land of Canaan, which would become the land of Israel. And it's very interesting that even those up in that Haran area had a knowledge of God. They used the right terminology and expression for God. And that just shows us how much God loves people. God has left vestiges or remnants of himself all over the world. In fact, the book of Romans says that when you look at creation, you're actually looking at a Bible study. Because God has spoken not only in the 66 books of the Bible that we have, but he has spoken in creation itself. For the heavens declare the glory of God. When you Look at what God has made. It's obvious that there is a designer. Because of the intricate design we can see in creation, right down to the fact that no two of our fingerprints are exactly alike. No snowflakes, two snowflakes that fall when examined under a microscope are exactly alike. How our earth traveling around the sun rotates around the sun at just the right distance. We're not so close to the sun that we burn to death. We're not so far away from the sun that we freeze to death. I mean, there's an obvious design in this world. This is what's called general revelation. Paul in Romans 2 says there's something else that God has given all people. It's called conscience, a inner standard of right and wrong that all people everywhere have, whether they're born spiritually or not, they have this. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And if you don't believe people have this, there's an easy way to prove that they have this. If you have two small kids at home, tell kid A, if you mow the lawn, I'll take you to In-N-Out Burger. Tell the second kid, if you mow the lawn, I'll take you to Disney World. 
kid A is going to say that's not fair. Well, where did you ever get the idea things were supposed to be fair? Why is there this inherent sense of unfairness that people can see when it happens? Because God has put his law and he has put them into the hearts of people. Everybody knows God exists. Um, if you don't believe God exists, that's fine, but you have to work real hard at explaining away the obvious. Romans chapter 1 says people take the knowledge of God and they hold it down and they suppress it. So it is interesting that this man Haran, all the way up in the north, uses the correct terminology Jehovah for God because the knowledge of God is everywhere. God is simply waiting for people to respond to what is obvious so he can send them the truth that's necessary so that they could be saved. Actually, Laban here tells sort of a white lie, as if there is such a thing as a white lie. I mean, a white lie is like I'm a little bit pregnant. You know? You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either telling the truth or you're not. I guess I can unleash my lawyer jokes at some point. How do you know a lawyer is lying? Well, his lips are moving. What's uh, black and brown and looks good on a lawyer, a Doberman Pinscher? And I say that with a lot of humor because we've got some very good lawyers in this church. Thank the Lord for that. But it says there, in, and I am a recovering lawyer myself, in case, you didn't, in case you didn't know. But it says there in the second part of verse 31, Why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? Hey, come on into my house. I've got everything prepared for you. He didn't have time to prepare. I mean, he's just encountered Rebecca with these bracelets and ring. So he's not telling the truth here, but he gives the impression to Abraham's servant that, hey, come on in. I've got everything uh, uh, set up for you. Because Laban was a man who was motivated by what he saw. Kind of like uh, Lot, you remember? Are you a lot like Lot? Lot, when given the choice Abraham said, if you go one way, I'll go the other. You go that way, I'll go the opposite. Take whatever you want. Lot, Genesis 13, was motivated by what he saw. He saw the lush land near the Sodom and Gomorrah area because the Lord, Genesis 13 said, had not yet destroyed that area. He did, of course, in Genesis 19. But Lot was somebody that was focused on what he saw. Motivated by his eyesight, Abraham was not motivated that way. He was motivated by the revelation of God. What motivates you? What motivates all of us? We can ask ourselves that question and should ask ourselves that question quite frequently. Are we doing what we are doing because we are motivated by the world system Or are we doing what we are doing because we are motivated by the revelation and the disclosure of God? You find people in the Bible going opposite directions on this. And we ought to be numbered amongst those who walk by faith and not by sight. 
So Laban here exercises some basic hospitality. Verse 32, he says, So the man entered the house, then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. He takes care of the caravan, in other words. Dropping down to verse 33, But when food was set before him to eat, He, that's Abraham's servant, said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And then Laban replies, speak on. I'm not going to enjoy food right now, the servant says, until I accomplish what it is I came for. I came for Rebecca because Rebecca is going to marry Isaac. That's why I'm here. I'm not here for amusement. I'm not here for personal aggrandizement. I am here because God, through Abraham, has put me here. Here's a man that knows his mission. Do you as a Christian know your mission? Because God has given us all different assignments. And if you don't know what your mission is, ask the Lord. I believe in the course of time he will show it to you. But it's so important to understand what your mission is, because if you don't understand your mission, what your mission is, what people have a tendency to do is they will drag you into all kinds of things that are good for them, but not necessarily, not necessarily related to your assignment. People all of the time will use you for their purposes. That unfortunately is the nature of human beings in their fallen state. And because of these constant distractions, it's such a wonderful thing to know what your assignment is. Because I basically know what my assignment is from God, I can say yes to things within the purview of my assignment and no to other things that would take me far afield from what my assignment is. This man was on assignment. I'm going to take, I'm going to find Rebecca. I'm going to take her back to Canaan, and she's going to marry Isaac, and this is how the nation of Israel will continue. So as the servant is narrating these things to Laban in Laban's house, the servant ends up retelling the story of how everything came in to get, came together through God's providence. Let a matter be confirmed to two to th- by two to three witnesses. Everything God says is important when it's repeated. It's like God is saying, you better pay attention to this. This is a big deal. So he retells the story. He identifies who he is. You see that in verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. There's an argument to be made, and we've mentioned this before, that this servant is none other than Eliezer of Damascus, who was introduced in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2. He was the one who, when Abraham and Sarah were childless, he was the natural heir of the estate. Isaac's birth took away his inheritance. And so he probably had every right to be jealous or have animosity towards Isaac. And yet he puts all of those personal things aside and he simply wants to execute the will of his master, Abraham. That's a tremendous illustration in the Bible of true servanthood. 
We're all servants. First Corinthians chapter four and verse two says in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. We, we are not owners. We are managers of many, many different things and God will give an account concerning our faithfulness to what he has entrusted to us. It's easy to let petty jealousy or self-serving motives interfere with what God wants us to do as stewards. But this man, arguably Eliezer of Damascus, put all of those things aside. And he simply wanted to execute the will of his master, Abraham. He begins to tell Laban about Abraham's blessings. You see those in verse 35. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys, which is always how wealth is measured in the Bible. It's always measured by these sort of tangible things, practical things that people own. A lot of people today think they're rich, but they're really not because they have a lot of cash and things of that nature. But biblically speaking, where true wealth comes from is it comes from practical things like 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 real estate and things of that nature. And that's what Abraham had. And of course he had it because that's what God said going back to Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bless you. And when God says, I'm going to bless you, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, he articulates about eight blessings, one of which is personal blessing. That's in Genesis 12. Therefore, it's no shock by the time you get to Genesis 24 that Abraham has all of these material things, these material blessings. The hand of God is obviously on Abraham's life because he's walking in the promises that God gave him individually. So now the conversation turns to Abraham's son, who needs a wife. Verse 36. Now, Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age and has given him all that he has. Who is Isaac who needs this wife? He's the child of promise. He's the one that Abraham and Sarah had at the, what, age of 100 and age 90, respectively. The birth of Isaac, the one that they waited and waited and waited for God to fulfill his promise, and God eventually fulfilled that promise. He now becomes the central character. He must be married because if there's no Isaac and Rebekah, there's no continuation, as we have tried to explain of the nation of Israel. The servant reminds Laban that he is doing what he is doing because he is under solemn oath from Abraham. The oath that we've already read about earlier in the chapter is described there in verse 37. It says, my master made me swear. So saying I'm under oath. I'm under obligation. Second part of verse 37 says, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son 
from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. God was very clear that Isaac is not to marry a Canaanite. He is to marry somebody in the land of Haran, now identified as Rebekah, outside of the land of Canaan. Why didn't God want Isaac to marry a Canaanite? It's pretty simple. The Canaanites, going back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, as some of the descendants of one of Noah's son, Ham, were put under a curse. Genesis 9.25 says, So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of his servants, he shall not be to his, he shall rather be to his brothers. What was wrong with Canaan? He, Ham, as we know from Genesis 9, disrespectfully uncovered the nakedness of Noah, an act of disrespect, and As the saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Ham's uh, descendants sort of imitated the immorality of, of their progenitor. God did not put them under a racial curse, as unfortunately many people argue. He did not put all of Ham's descendants under a curse, but the specific group of Canaanites that would settle in the land of Canaan became immoral because that's what they learned from their progenitor. And knowing that would happen, knowing that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, the Canaanites, for that reason, are under a curse. In fact, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 of the Amorites, which was a subset of the Canaanites, says, Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, this whole group of people is under a divine curse because of their behavior. This is why when Joshua was to go into the land of promise, he was specifically told in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, concerning Israel in the land of promise, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why is that? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. There's no such thing as missionary dating, in other words. Missionary marriages. I'm going to marry so-and-so and rescue them. That's not how it works. Essentially what will happen is you, the tail will start to wag the dog. You'll become a lot more like them than them becoming a lot more like you. A very important thing to understand because a lot of people are sort of rescuers. They get into these relationships thinking that they're going to change somebody. But the truth of the matter is at the end of the day, it's the person that outside of God's leading, got into the relationship to begin with, they're the ones that changed, not the person that they were trying to rescue. This is why 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18 says, Do not be unequally, what? Yoked together with unbelievers. 
A yoke, is, as you know, it's a harness that went over two animals. And if the animals were unequally yoked, the stronger would influence the weaker. The Bible from page one is saying be very, very careful about intimate personal relationships that you enter into with people who do not share your same value system. Obviously, we are in the world, but not of the world. We constantly interact with the unsaved world in all kinds of walks of life. You have no control over that. What you have control over is intimacy, who you give intimacy to. This is typically applied to marriage. It can be applied to friendship, business partnership, but this servant had his instructions. That's why he's about 450 miles away from home trying to find this wife. He does it successfully, by the way, uh, named, uh, named Rebecca. The instructions were very, very clear. And oh, the heartache that we put ourselves through when we just take God's plain instructions and ignore them. There's a lot we could say about that. Amen. My master, going back to verse 37, made me swear you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. Get out of here. Get out of this territory that I, Abraham says I'm going to inherit anyway one day. Because the people that live in this land don't know me. They don't understand me. They're not walking with God. I want you instead to go to my father's house in Haran for this wife, for my son Isaac. You look at verse 38 and it says, But you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. Where was his father's house? His father would be Terah. Terah has since passed on. Terah, uh, we ran into in Genesis 11:31, dwelling between the Euphrates and the Tigris, sometimes called the Ur of the Chaldeans, that Abraham was called out of. And according to Genesis 11:31, we they migrated upwards into Haran. That's where you're going to find Isaac's wife. The servant expressed. A concern. Verse 39, as he's narrating these things to Laban, referring back to the initial oath that he took from Abraham, I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. So, number one, I'm going to leave and I'm going to find this wife for Isaac. Number one, how do I know I'm going to find the right woman? Well, that issue got solved. Number two, what if she doesn't want to come? What if she wants to stay in Haran? What do I do then? You look at verse 40 and you see the mind of God on the subject. He said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you. To make your journey successful and you will take a wife for my son from my relatives, from my father's house. Don't, don't worry about all of this stuff. What if she, how am I going to find her? What if she doesn't want to come back? God says I've got that covered. It's kind of interesting that God and Abraham didn't explain to the servant how God was going to have it covered. He just explained God's got that covered. 
So when you walk by faith with the Lord, don't expect the Lord to give you all of the details of the plan on the front end. It doesn't work that way. If you had all of the details of the plan on the front end, then you really wouldn't be walking by faith, would you? Because the way we are is when we feel God is calling us to do something, we want to know how everything's going to work out. God said, I'm not going to tell you how everything's going to work out because I want to build your faith in the process. What I want you to do is just to step out of the boat like Peter did on the Sea of Galilee and walk and leave the details to me. You know, so many people in modern-day Christianity never become what God has called them to become because they simply won't walk by faith. They want everything answered at the beginning. God doesn't work that way. That would be outside the plan of God, the providence of God, the purpose of God. So this servant has some very real questions, but God says, you know what, I'm going to dispatch my angel to help you. This is the second time this angel has been mentioned. Guardian angels, do you believe in angels? I do. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 of angels says in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Who are those that will inherit salvation? That's us, isn't it? And did you know that God dispatches angels to help you reach your destiny and destination in your walk of faith. And the angels are ministering spirits. You can't even see them. But they're there. How many angels are there? I don't know. They're analogized to the stars. We can't even number the stars. The Bible says 10,000 times 10,000. We know Revelation 12, verses 3 through 8, that a third of them fell. Some of that third did something really bad in Genesis 6, which we've studied, which put them in incarceration. But what's so encouraging to understand is that two-thirds are on our side. Isn't that a majority? I mean, one plus God is a majority, right? That should be enough. But two-thirds of the angels that God uses in the outworking of his people are on our side. That's why you don't have to know all the details. The the angels will figure that out. They'll guide your way. They'll make your path, uh, path clear. And you'll look there at the end of verse uh, 40 to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife from my son, from my relatives, and from my father's house. You're not going to be successful in and of yourself. God is going to make you successful. So many times we think that our success rides totally on our shoulders, and that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you're walking with God, he is responsible for the success or failure of the mission. Psalm 127 and verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
unless the Lord guards the city. The watchman keeps awake in vain. You can have the greatest army and the greatest weapons. You could surround your city. You can surround your wall. But if the Lord is not keeping guard over that city, it's just an exercise in futility. That's why constantly we have to ask the Lord, Lord, keep me in the center of your will. Because I know that it's in the center of your will that I experience the divine protection that I need. And you have dispatched all of the resources I need to fulfill your mission for your life. Now, if I'm too busy trying to fulfill my mission for my life, none of this applies. It's not God's mission. It's your mission. So you're on your own. You defend your own city. But what, what, is being, what is happening here is this servant is walking in a mission that God gave him. It's an important mission. And so the resources of heaven are at his fingertips. There's angelic protection involved that he can't even see. And details are going to work out, and he doesn't even know how they're going to work out. And God didn't bother to tell him how it's going to work out. He just says, walk by faith, and you'll pull it off. Because it's not your task, it's mine, God says. Verse 41 gives you the condition through which the servant can get out of the oath. It says in verse 41, then you will be free from my oath when you come home to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. The servant is under the solemn oath. And the only way out of it for him is if Rebecca doesn't want to come with him back to Canaan. But as we're going to see, that problem gets fixed real fast also. You know, God is a pretty good fixer of problems. You know, it's, it's, sort, of a, it's sort of a different way of looking at problems. You know, sometimes some, some problem will break out here in the church. And rather than me or the elders trying to jump in and fix every little thing... It's so refreshing to say, well, Lord, um, I'm curious how you're going to fix your problem in your church. Because it's your church, not mine. And then do you look at your house that way? Lord, how are you going to fix the dishwasher in your house that you gave me? I mean, it just uh, you, you just go through life like that. It takes so much stress out of life. As long as we think all of these things are ours and we're holding on to everything so tightly... You know, the stress is on our shoulders, but it's so liberating to walk out the life of stewardship. We're not owners, we're stewards. You drop down to verses 42 through 44, and the servant, very wisely, before he leaves, and he's explaining all of these things to Laban, begins to pray. Verse 42, so I came to you today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful. Lord, I'm stepping out. You're responsible for the success, though. Not me. 
Did you know that the Bible never says, well done, thy good and successful servant? It says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I mean, our job is to be faithful. Whether it's successful or not, that's in the hands of God. I don't find much in the Bible about us having to go out and be successful. What I find is us having to be faithful. The success or failure of a project, which belongs to God anyway, is on his shoulders. You see that in this prayer by the servant when he's given his task. Verse 43, Behold, I am standing by the spring, and may it be that the maiden who comes to draw and to whom I say, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she will say to me, you drink and I will draw for you, for your camels. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. He's standing by this well. All these women are coming in and out. And so he just asks the Lord for a specific prayer request. I'm going to tell a woman that I see I need a drink. And if she turns around and says, okay, you get a drink and also your camels too, showing, by the way, her selflessness. And she's the one. And so it's amazing how fast the Lord answered that prayer request. It says in verse 45, before I had finished speaking, couldn't even get the prayer request out of his mouth before God answered it. Before I finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew, and I said to her, please let me drink. Down in verse 46, it says, she quickly, see how fast this is happening? She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. And at that point, it's ding, 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 ding. That's her. We've made a reference to this before, but there's no shame in asking for God to fulfill specific prayer requests like this. This is very specific. Because unless the specifics are answered, how would you ever know the prayer request is answered? So having some detail in your prayer requests when you're walking with the Lord is actually, I think, a healthy practice for a Christian. Verse 48, and I bowed down low. This is the servant, arguably Eliezer of Damascus, speaking I bowed down low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. We've made the point that true worship, and you'll see the word worship there in verse 48, is a response to the truth. You're overwhelmed at the providence of God. You're overwhelmed at the character of God. You're overwhelmed at the outworking of God's purposes. The only thing you know how to do is to worship the Lord. 
And by the way, when you come to Sugarland Bible Church to worship the Lord, you've got two big reasons to worship the Lord. They're given in Revelation 4, and they're given in Revelation 5. God is automatically worthy of worship for two reasons. Regardless of our emotions at the moment, regardless of our feelings at the moment, God deserves worship from his people for two reasons. The first reason is given in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 11. Where it says, worship are you? This is the heavenly scene, worshiping God. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you. The next word is interesting, created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Number one, God deserves worship because of creation. You're his creation. God spoke and the heavens and the earth leapt into existence. And on that basis alone, he deserves creation. So therefore, when mankind comes up with theories as to how the world came into existence without God, sometimes called evolution, which is this idea that we go from the goo to you by way of the zoo over billions of years, and we try to explain creation without God at all, God doesn't like that because Revelation 4 verse 11 says God deserves worship from his people because of creation himself. The greatest miracle of God. A lot of people struggle with, you know, things in the Bible, floating axe heads and water to wine and the feeding of the 5,000 with just a few fish and a few loaves The fact of the matter is, if you believe Genesis 1, verse 1, the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I mean, if you can believe that, what's a floating axe head to God? That's easy. I mean, show me what your beliefs are about Genesis 1, verse 1. Show me what your level of faith is concerning that miracle. And if you have strong faith there, the rest of the Bible, believing it is very easy. But if you can't acknowledge that on the first page in the first verse, a man coming back from the grave, etc., why believe that? That's why the Bible starts with creation, the greater to the lesser. So whenever you come into worship to worship the Lord, the first thing on your mind is, you know what, God deserves this. Because of creation. And the book of Revelation tells us the second reason God deserves worship because of redemption. It's in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. This is the heavenly scene again amongst the 24 elders and the myriads of angels and the four living creatures. They're worshiping the Lord. It's explaining why they're worshiping the Lord. And they sang a song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, 
because you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. The second reason God deserves worship is because of redemption. Look at what Jesus did to take creation and redeem it back to himself when creation rebelled against him. Look at the price he paid. Now, if you're someone's creator and redeemer, I mean, are there any higher credentials than that? There's none that I can think of. I mean, those are the ultimate credentials. People today, you know, in all of these social media things, LinkedIn and all of these things, love to give their credentials. I guess there's nothing wrong with giving your credentials, but God gives his credentials. They're the highest credentials that you could have. He is the creator. He spoke and the heavens and earth leapt into existence. And then when that identical creation turned its back on him and created the barrier of sin, he stepped out of eternity into time to bear in his body the wrath of God the Father against sin when that wrath should be upon us. He's the creator, he's the redeemer. There's there's a little bit more to worship, isn't there, than I hope they play my favorite song today in church. It's It's, we have such a shallow sort of almost spiritually infantile understanding of worship. People will get into fights about worship and styles, and then they don't even know what what it is we're worshiping, why we're worshiping. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He, He deserves it. And if I'm reading the book of Revelation correctly, he doesn't really like it when the world denies him what belongs to him. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, beginning around verse 18, for the wrath of God is kindled against mankind. Whoa. And God is angry with the world? Why is God angry with the world? Paul explains because they took what obviously is the hand of God in creation and they suppressed it. They held it down. They pretended as if God didn't exist. They ordered their lives as if God didn't exist. In other words, you can be an atheist if you want to, but you're going to have to work real hard at it. It's like trying to explain away the Atlantic Ocean. You're explaining away something that cannot be explained away. Creation itself and then the redemption of creation through the person of Jesus Christ. That's worship. And that's what this servant who is just off the charts in my view and how he is conducting himself is imitating or emulating here. This has been given, this story has been given to us twice. God wants us to understand this. That this servant, when God connected the dots, in a way that the servant couldn't even have anticipated. When God connected the dots and he put Isaac and Rebecca together, the only thing he knew how to do was just to worship Worship the Lord. So the prayer is answered. 
It is interesting that when you look at these verses, a particular Hebrew word is used of Rebecca, or she is called here the young woman. And the particular word that is used of Rebecca is Alma, around verses 42 through 44. Now, earlier in the chapter, Betula was used. And when Alma is used, it's speaking of a virgin. When Betula is used, as it's used here, because it says she had not known a man, it's speaking of her virginity. Alma is used, Betula is used. That helps us unpack Isaiah 7, verse 14, which is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. It says, therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's the word Alma. And people say, oh, come on, Alma doesn't mean virgin. Yes, it does. Because that's who Rebecca is. She's a virgin. Because earlier, Betula was also used, and it said by way of explanation that she had not known a man. I mean, there's only two words that could be used here. Betula, which needs more clarification, and Alma. And so when Isaiah 7.14 says Jesus is going to be born of a virgin, it uses that identical word, Alma. You believe Jesus was born of a virgin? If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then what would have gotten passed down to him would be the what? Sin nature. Now we got a problem. Because if Jesus has sin, he can't qualify to be our perfect sacrifice, can he? That's why the virgin birth is such a big deal. And it's interesting that Isaiah 7, verse 14, uses the word Alma, um, which is the identical word used uh, of Rebecca in these passages. You'll see it there, verses 42 through 44. The servant at that point, after his prayer is answered, verses 45 through 48, asks a question, verse 49, of Laban. You know the story, Laban. You know how I ended up here in Haran. You know how I met Re- Rebecca. And you know the only way I'm getting out of this oath is if Rebecca doesn't want to come back with me. Verse 49, Laban says, what's it going to be? Put up or shut up. Verse 49, so now if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, if not, let me know that I might turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, Laban, it's in your court. You know the story. The decision is in Rebecca's court, the ball being in her court. Make a choice. If you say no, it releases me from the oath. 
and I go back to the land of Canaan, explain to my master what happened, and now I'm in the clear. But it would be better if you said yes. It would be better if you said yes, Rebecca said yes, I could take Rebecca back to Canaan, she could marry Isaac, and the nation of Israel will, will continue. So make, make a decision here. I've done my part, now you do your part. Kind of interesting that the servant basically understood that he did not need to manipulate or control people. You know, so many times we're trying to control the decisions of other people. God doesn't call us to do that. God tells us to do our part. Now what people do with the information is up to them. But the moment you give them the information... You're off the hook. It's like sharing the gospel with people. You can't control whether they're going to believe or not, accept it or reject it. And God doesn't hold you accountable for that. What he holds you accountable for is sharing it or being faithful to what he's shown you. Once you do that, then they have to make a decision. And that's the kind of thing that you see the servant doing as he's now putting the ball back into the court of Laban and his family. So what's going to happen? Well, you'll have to come back and see how we're going to cover that. Amen. Of course, you already know what's going to happen. And if you don't know what's going to happen, you can read the rest of the chapter this week and see what's going to happen. But the truth of the matter is we're here today not only to study the Bible, but to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? It is Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to bridge a gap that we could not bridge ourselves between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. Jesus bridged the gap. What we are responsible to do is to trust in it. I can't control whether you trust in the message or not. I wish I could. God never gave me the keys or the control to do that. And you can't control what other people do with it. But you can control your part of it, which is the presentation of it, which we've tried to do today. So our exhortation is to make a right decision. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in what Jesus has done for you 2,000 years ago. Place your hope, trust, confidence, reliance, dependence for your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul and the forgiveness of your sin debt away from yourself, away from your good works, away from your religiosity, but exclusively into what Jesus did. And if you do that... On the authority of God's word, you're his child, just like that. I don't know if there's any better news out there than what I just said. If there's something better out there, let me know, because this is the best it gets. This is the zenith. You'll never in your life hear better news than that. And as wonderful as that news is and as hard as we can labor to articulate it correctly, like Laban, you've got to make a decision. 
God has no grandchildren. You cannot live off the faith of your parents, assuming your parents were godly people. You have got to live off your own faith. And that begins by trusting in what Jesus has done. Our exhortation by way of closing is to trust in the person of Jesus. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for this uh, secondary witness of the story retold. It's something you obviously want us to learn. Help us not to just be pie-in-the-sky theology, but help this to impact the way that we live in the present as we trust your guidance and providence this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.